Okay, Romans 11. Now, you're halfway, if you weren't with us last week, um, what you've got to know is that when you pick up at Romans 11, you're halfway through a longer section where Paul is trying to uh, ask the big question, well, what about Israel? What about the Jews? And uh, so he's, uh, in, in chapter 10, 9 and 10 last week, what we, what we spent most of our time looking at was this sense that um, one of the things that Paul was very aware of was that for him, his own people were so important that he hadn't written them off and neither had God. And that the, one of the ways that God, you know, one of the, the sort of indicators that God hadn't written them off was that people like Paul were still preaching to them. Uh, because he said, actually, the only way the Jewish people um, would find all that they were looking for was in Jesus. Now, one of the, because we live in a world, and, and because we live at the, in the world that we live in, where over the 20th century, the massive uh, event of the Holocaust stands sort of overshadowing so much, for some, um, for some people, even to begin to think about uh, Jewish people needing Jesus, to be told about Jesus, can actually be suggested that it's, that's anti-Semitic. In, and then in some sense, it's sort of like a political correctness that says, just leave them alone. Don't, don't say anything to them. But one, one of the things I want you to remind you of is that Paul is Jewish. He's talking about his own people. So he's not saying there's a group of people out there that they, you know, that I've got nothing to do with, but he's talking about his own. And he's, he's talking about that sense of, well, what's God up to here? And that's how chapter 11 begins. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they killed your prophets, they torn down your altars, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it can't be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they didn't obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it's written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they can't see and their backs bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation's come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means, means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. And as much as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? 
If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root's holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing sap from the olive root, don't consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. You'll say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they don't persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God's able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may think you're superior. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel's concerned, they're enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's another. It's not actually complicated when you start to see what he's trying to do. But before we do that, let's just think, well, why is this important for us to listen to this morning? Well, if you want, if you're on Facebook and you want to get lots of people to um, write back to you or comment on something you write, write something about Israel. Because you'll get deluged with other Christians who have an opinion. And Christians fall out about Israel almost about more than anything else. You see, for some Christians, it's like God's finished with the Jews, and now it's all about the church. And for other Christians, God's so much on the side of the Jews that it's almost that whatever Israel does as a nation, they support. And it's almost you get Christians who then start celebrating Jewish festivals. It's almost like they want to be Jewish. Paul had something to say about that in another passage. For Paul, he's wanting to ask, what's God up to? What's God doing here? When the Jews don't seem to have responded to the good news of Jesus. What's God doing? Are God's promises true? 
Now, I think one of the things Paul's doing is that if you've been with us for any of these series, you might remember that at the beginning of the book, in chapter one, he talks about creation that's gone completely wrong. People have turned their back on God. It's like the creation has dissolved, as it were. And we've chosen ways that God never intended. And by the end of this chapter 11, I think what Paul's done, he's almost getting to the place where he's saying, so what's the, what's the end picture going to look like? It's like from creation to consummation. It's like, what's the big story that we're living in? Because when he gets to chapter 12, he's going to start being much more obviously practical. So this is, in a sense, the end of Paul's big picture. Chapter 9 to 11 are not like add-ons, because actually, unless you can work out what's the Old Testament, how's God going to deal with the Old Testament, then you've not got the big picture. Now, the interesting thing for us is that in our city, uh, in Manchester, in Greater Manchester as whole, there are 24,000 Jewish people live in Greater Manchester, with a city with the second highest number of Jewish people in our country. And in Salford, uh, Bury has the most of those people, and Salford has the second highest number of Jewish people who live within our city. And uh, if you wander up into uh, Higher Broughton or into Cheatham Hill or into those areas, Sedgley, on a Saturday morning, you will see the whole range of Jewish people, some very orthodox, some dressed with the big, uh, the men with the big fur hats on, um, as, as well as secular Jews who, who might not be so obvious. It's interesting that this week, on the front page of the advertiser, if you get it, uh, you might have seen this story. I've been punched, threatened, and pelted with eggs, but I won't let anti-Semitic thugs win, says Salford Rabbi. And that guy is uh, Arnold Saunders, um, who I, 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 I know him, actually. I've met him many, many years ago. I met him because he was a financial advisor. And um, uh, we had a brilliant conversation about uh, faith and not money. Um, but he's saying, actually, because of what's going on in the Middle East at the moment, that he's getting a backlash of that. And people, they're, 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 you know, they are threatening him. And they're also threatening the synagogue and, as thugs often do, uh, going into the graveyards and desecrating the graves. Now, how do we respond to that? Well, we respond because we're decent human beings, whoever that might be and wherever that might be background, whether it had been Jewish, Muslim, Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter, we would say that is wrong. But actually, there's something that's heightened for Jewish people. There's something heightened about this. And it's partly because of our own centuries history that always there's that fear of them being pushed to the margins and pushed out of the margins, as it were. So for us, it's not just an issue that's theological, what's the big promises of God, but actually it has an impact because people in our own city that we might pass or we might live in the same sort of neighborhoods would be the people that Paul's talking about. So it's not a theoretical question. It's like, well, what's God doing with them? As we said last week, the big question Paul's answering, has God finished with plan A? the children of Abraham who, through whom all nations would be blessed, and he's just got a plan B, the Christians? Or is God wanting to do something that actually includes all the people of the Old Testament 
the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles. You see, the answer, if the answer is yes, God's finished with the Jews, and it's just now about people who are Gentiles, it's, like, it's clean. It's like, well, okay, it's disappointing, but we know where we are. But if God still has something to do with the Jewish people, what is it? And the thing that Paul makes clear is it's not simple. It's not simple. But God is at work. Now, one of the things that I hope happens as we come to church and we listen and we're involved in different groups and all that sort of stuff is that increasingly, as you grow older as a Christian, one of the things you should become much more aware of is that God is not into simple equations. When I was 17, God was really straightforward. I understood him ever so well. 30, 40 years later, it's really not that clear. Because the older you go, the more you realize that God is at work. I actually trust God more than I did at 17, but I realize he's more complicated than I ever imagined at 17. And I think one of the things about maturing faith calls for a trust in a God who doesn't do the simple equations. And I think what you've got going on here is Paul saying God doesn't do simple equations. Now, the truth is, the truth is, for some Christians, that's, they don't want to hear that. What they want to hear is just a simple equation. Say this, this will happen. Do that, that will happen. Pray this, that will happen. God will always do this if you do that. But the problem is that that's not true to life, and it's not actually what faith's about. So what Paul presents here is a picture of a future that you've got to get your head around because it's not A plus B is C, a simple equation. Don't worry about the writing at the moment. But it's, it's almost like Paul standing at the top of a ladder and he's pulling back the picture and going, actually, there's a bigger picture than you might imagine. So he starts with the simple question, has God rejected his people? And his answer is, not at all. By no means has God rejected his own people. And he uses himself as an example. He says, look, I'm Jewish. He hasn't forgotten me. God hasn't rejected his people. Verse 6, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Now, that word remnant simply means it's a little a group within a wider group. And the Old Testament are full of little stories of remnant people, people who are faithful even if everybody isn't. And God uses faithful people in the midst of people who are not faithful that they might be used by him to reach their own people. And what Paul wants to remind them is this remnant, because often in the, the story of the Jews, the remnant were really holy people. They were really righteous people. They were really good people. And he goes, no, this remnant is a remnant by grace. They've trusted Jesus. So there's hope for the Jews. His second question, then, in verse 11, because 1 to 10 explores that, in 11, he said, have they stumbled? Have they gone too far? Have they stumbled so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Have they, gone so, have they rejected Jesus so much that they can't get back? No, not at all. And in verse 11, he says, and this is where it starts to get interesting. He says, actually, their resistance to Jesus 
has been used by God for the good of the world. In verse 11, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. To make Israel envious. Come to the envy in a minute. But what he does in verse... Um, Verse 17 through to uh, verse 24, he uses a picture of an olive tree. Now, in, I, I don't know if you know, I don't know, I don't know what you know about olive trees. Maybe not a lot. Um, I know one sentence more than that. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I know very little about olive trees. But what I do know is that they, they're often very, very old, and they, they look really, they, this, uh, you know, these, these, this sort of an olive tree could well be a thousand years old. That's the point. I mean, when I say old, I mean old. Um, we were on holiday in Crete, and we, we saw an olive tree that was 3,000 years old. Do you know what I mean? It's like, these are, these, these are what you call annuals. Um, now, what, they, what happens with olive trees is that as olive trees get older, apparently, I've read this, I don't know it, um, you get this sort of wild olive tree. They're very strong, they're very vigorous, they last a long time, as I've just said. But over time, what happens is they, they lose their fruitfulness. So what people will do is they'll graft in a branch of a very fruitful olive tree that's actually quite weaker, and then they'll graft it in, sort of, you know, they'll make a mark into the tree so the, 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 the branch goes in, and the branch becomes part of the olive tree then. Does that make sense? Okay, so you've got this really wild olive tree that has a cultivated branch come in. Now what Paul does is he flips that and says, actually, the Jews were the cultivated tree, and the Gentiles, who've been grafted in, you're the wild ones, But he does it for two reasons. He says, firstly, for Gentiles, recognize that you've been grafted into a Jewish tree. That, and, and, and it's kind of true, isn't it? Because like, we're reading through Romans at the moment, and even that chapter we've read has got lots of references to the Old Testament. And um, we, in church, will regularly preach from the Old Testament recognizing that that's one of the ways God speaks to us. It's not like we just say, God, you know, we don't need to worry about the Old Testament. It's Matthew onwards. Remember I told you last week that if you were with us, that um, I said when I was teaching at the college, I used to go to these synagogues with, with students. And uh, one of the things that the synagogue leaders were often surprised at was how much our Christian students knew about the Old Testament. And our students were really surprised about how little the Jewish leaders would know about the New Testament. I did have one student come out and say, it doesn't seem fair, does it? Um, because we know about your book, why don't you know about us? And, and it's because actually for us, we see that this story didn't begin in Matthew's gospel with the birth of Jesus, but actually began way back in the Old Testament. Now, we've been grafted in. All the way through the New Testament, one of the things Paul's wanted to do is say that the Gentile and the Jew, they've become the people of God. God has done it. God has made one people where at one time there was two people. In Ephesians, it talks about God has broken down the wall that separated us. So in other words, 
because, the gen uh, because Israel was so resistant to the gospel, actually, the Gentiles were brought in. And then he moves it and he says, just as sort of like, almost as a by the by, he says, so be careful you don't become arrogant. Don't write other people off. Because just as God might have actually said, well, I'm going to do something new, so he might actually cut you off too. So don't be arrogant. Be careful. And then the third thing he gets to is the bigger question. And it starts in verse 25. There is a bigger picture. And the bigger picture in verse 26 is this. Uh, well, in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant. So you may think you're a superior, said that. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's a bigger picture. Verse 26. Because, in verse 29, God, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That word I stumbled over. Irrevocable. It means that God can't take back his own word. That's what irrevocable It's not an easy word to say. That's what it means. Irrevocable. It means that you can't call it back again. So what God promises, he never gives up on. So what does it mean for all Israel to be saved? Well, this is one of those little verses in the Bible that theologians love because it gives them a chance to earn a living by writing books about what difficult passages in the Bible mean. Some people say it's every Jewish person. Sometimes it's ever, that's ever lived. For some people, it's every Jew that's alive at the end. For some people, it's every, believe, every Jew that believes in Jesus. It's difficult to know. I, for what it's worth, I think it refers to the Israel that have hardened their hearts against Jesus. It seems to make most sense of the passage as a whole. Because what Paul's dealing with is, what do you do when you've got a people who've turned their back on God. And what Paul is wanting the church to have is a sense of hope in what God's going to do. All Israel will be saved because God keeps his promises. They'll be saved not through keeping the law. They'll be saved not by their festivals. They'll be saved not by their feast days. They'll be saved through Jesus. But there's something about that idea that God hasn't given up on his own people. So let me pull back the lens and say, well, okay, so how do we make sense of it for our own lives? Well, the first thing is, I want to remind you that in a, an omission context, which all of this is, God's at work. When Paul was writing this in, to the Romans, he was looking around going, all these people just seem to have turned their back on Jesus, it just seems like hopeless. And Paul writes the Romans to remind them that God hasn't finished his work. And I want to encourage you and me that God allows things to happen, even the hardening of people's hearts as part of his purpose. God hasn't finished. The salvation story is not over yet. God's at work. Chapter 9, 10, 11 are not about how the church should do mission. It's actually about God. 
how hopeful you are about God. Second, he's placed us in situations where we become the means of blessing to others. In chapter 10, Paul said, how are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? Now for us, when we start to hear that, it feels like, oh, how are we going to preach to them? Well, I, the idea of preaching to people that we know and love seems so very difficult. But in chapter 11, he's actually unpacked, how do you do it? And what he's starting to say is, your lives, our lives should make other people envious. That's his big idea about how the Jews will turn. They'll look at the church and go, the church, they seem like they're onto something. Now, we have not done that very well at times. To anybody. The church has looked repressed, repressive, oppressed, oppressive. It's, it's looked like we're narrow. It looks like we're mean. It looks like we're petty. It looks like we're spiteful. We can't even get on with ourselves at times. We argue, we fall out, we don't forgive. And people go, I want to join you? And Paul says, no, 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 no. What you're called to do is make people envious. Someone's written this. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. I was sitting with uh, a teacher on uh, dinner on Tuesday evening. Um, she was in her second school now. And uh, she was talking to me about being a Christian in her school. And she said, when I was in my first school at the age of 22, 23, she said, I was the young evangelist that got everybody's back up. She said, I went in there brash with my message and no one wanted to know. She said, then I left that school. And she said, and I think they all breathed a sigh of relief. She said, but in the school I'm in now, after five years, people ask me, will you pray for me? And they preface it in the way that people often do is, I don't believe in it, but will you pray for me? She said, they asked me, what do you think about the issues? And she said, and it's happened because actually I just made it real massive intention to become their friend. She said, so I've gone out on all the evenings out with them. I've gone to all the events that they've had. I've been to all their housewarmings. I've been to all their parties. And I've gone as myself. She said, because I've gone to share my life, who I am. She said, and I think now... It seems very different than in my first school when it felt like I was sent out with a message. She seemed to me to be a woman who was making other people envious. When people ask you, will you pray for me, what they're saying is, I wish I could, but you seem to be able to. <laughs> and you're making people envious. And the fourth and final thing is, because... God is merciful. At the end of uh, chapter 10, there's a little verse that says, this is what Israel's, uh, God and Israel, concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And chapter 11, at the end of, uh, before the doxology, verse 30, 
Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, you've now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Four times in two verses. How many times? What does he want you to know? God is merciful. God does not treat people as they deserve, but God is merciful to all. Now for some of you, you will direct this directly to people who are Jewish that you work with, and you ought to. For others of you, you need to think about the people you're with, who are your people. Who are the people you're praying for? Who are the people God has placed you amongst? Who are the people that you can make envious? Who are the people that God's heart is merciful towards? The mercy of God is not God just going, oh, let him in anyway. The mercy of God is come through Jesus. The mercy of God says, I'm not going to just destroy, but come through Jesus. The way God works is more complicated than we might wish. But God is at work among your people. God is at work amongst his people. The bigger picture for us at the moment is we live at a moment where the Middle East and that whole region is just, is just self-destruct. Um, Chris has been in Lebanon this week, and uh, one of the things I want to do over coffee, Chris, is come and talk to you about that. And so if you want to leave, you might want to get out quick. But he's been there as part of uh, his job with uh, Radio 5 because just the mess of Syria and the impact in Lebanon and how that's been going on. And for those of us my age, we've lived all our lives looking at the Middle East going, it's just a mess. Not really understanding sometimes what's going on there. Not understanding sometimes who the good guys and the bad guys are even. And we look at it and he's just like, it's just a mess. And then you come back here and Paul says to first century Romans, the same he would say to 21st century people who watch the news, God's not finished. So be careful. Be careful about how you treat people who are different than you. Be careful about how it's easy to sneer when you see the women with their, their, their wigs that are so obviously wigs, the men with their clothing that marks them out so very obviously. The way that sometimes they're different than us culturally, the way they speak and the way they react, which sometimes is offensive and we find it difficult. Be careful, for God hasn't finished with them. Because God's heart is a heart of mercy. For this salvation story is not just for us. It's for those whom he loves. So be careful. Don't be arrogant. But do live in ways that intentionally say, what I would love is I'd love people to look at my life and not say he's perfect or she's perfect. They've got everything together. Because to be honest, you haven't and neither have I and you won't. But to look at us and go, in the midst of all their trouble, 
they have something I would love. The people might envy, not us, but the Lord that we rely on.